From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you'd like to talk to Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father Brian Milady, how are you? Fine, thank you. You know, uh, just because of our human condition... I'm sure that almost every one of us that have spent more than five minutes on planet Earth have found ourselves in a situation that we may have thought was hopeless. And uh, there's a patron saint for that, and you have a particular devotion to him, and you're going to talk about St. Jude today. Yeah, St. Jude, wonderful St. Jude. Um, I've had several personal experiences in my own life where I considered something to be a hopeless case. And uh, or, you know, the forgotten. And I prayed to St. Jude. And strangely enough, on the ninth day of the novena, in one particular case that was very trying, it was resolved. So, you know, tomorrow is the feast of two apostles, St. Simon and St. Jude. And St. Jude is especially beloved and remembered by us today as the patron of hopeless or forgotten causes. He's also the patron of hospitals and a few other things too. Of course, the Jude that we celebrate is an apostle, so he's found in scripture, and there's been some confusion regarding his name and who he is in relationship to Judas Iscariot, for example, and that's one of the reasons why he's the patron of forgotten cases because people have often mistaken him for Judas Iscariot. But there are basically four places in the New Testament where St. Jude is mentioned. He's first of all mentioned as one of the Twelve Apostles. Then he's secondly mentioned as Jude, not Judas Iscariot, even though his name is really the same. Manuscripts changed it to uh, distinguish him from Judas. Finally, he's mentioned as the brother of Jesus, And then he's also mentioned as the writer of the epistle of Jude, which is a very short epistle, but is an epistle which identifies uh, the author as being very interested in trying to give people who are suffering from secularism or anti-religion of his own time some advice about how to deal with it all. 
And basically, his advice is that, and it's simple, really, that we need to take the means God has used to help us preserve our faith, which are prayer, love of God, and hope in Christ. When St. Jude is depicted, he's often depicted, first of all, as having either a club or an axe, which, depending on what you read, was the means of his martyrdom. He's also depicted with a tongue of fire over his head because, of course, he was a Pentecost. But interestingly enough, uh, the third part of his depiction, usually in the statue, is holding a picture in his hand. And this is the part of a famous, famous legend, which is that the, and I'll quote actually one of the ancient sources for you, Eusebius, uh, the ancient church historian who maintained the Jew who eventually went to what's now southern, southeastern Turkey, um, not only Samaria, but also Syria and Mesopotamia, and was martyred there, was very much involved in an episode in which King Edgar of Edessa, which is in this area of the world, sent a letter to Jesus seeking a cure for an illness afflicting him. With the letter, he sent his envoy, Hanan, the keeper of the archives, offering his own home city to Jesus as a safe dwelling place. The envoy painted a likeness of Jesus with choice paints, or alternatively, impressed by Edgar's faith, Jesus pressed his face under the cloth and gave it to Hanan to take to Edgar with his answer. Upon seeing Jesus' image, the king placed it with great honor in one of his palatial houses. After Christ's execution, Judas Thomas the Apostle sent Adai, one of the tw 70 or 72 in Luke, to him Agar, and the king was cured. Astonished, he converted to Christianity along with many of the people under his rule. And Christ said he couldn't come himself but he'd send this person, and after his execution, uh, Jude was one of the people sent. This image, called the Mendelian, has been traced, even through Constantinople, to Europe, and it's the origin of all the icons of Christ, interestingly enough. And it was held in the city of Edessa, some, several, and several times it helped to save the city, from a flood or from a attack. And so the image that Jude is holding is obviously something that's close to him because of the person he loves there who would be Christ. And in another um, account of this uh, miraculous image of Edessa, it's also stated that in the very same history is contained what Christ looked like. It was a well-eyed, well-browed, long visage of cheer and inclined uh, with a sign of maturity or ripe sadness. So Jude is the patron of difficult and hopeless causes, and many people have invoked his aid under this, if you want an excellent book that tells you all you ever wanted to know about St. Jude, there's a wonderful book by a journalist, oddly enough, named Liz Trotta called Jude. 
and she has researched everything there is to know about this, including where some of the modern shrines are found. And there are a number of them in the United States. Uh, the two Dominican shrines that are probably most famous is one in Chicago and one in San Francisco. But I encourage all of you to uh, adopt the prayer and the devotion to St. Jude. If you have something that you find impossible to resolve in your life, in um, San Francisco, one of our priests once said that his confessional was next to the shrine of St. Jude. And he was very, very devoted to St. Jude because of the confessions that he received from people who had visited the shrine itself. So regarding devotion, there's a St. Jude Novena that, of course, ends tomorrow. We'll have a, we had a large procession in San Francisco in the streets and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I highly encourage you to get to know St. Jude and to ask his intercession. He's not only an author of one of the books of the scriptures, he's called the brother of Jesus, because not because Jesus had physical brothers as other children of Mary and Joseph, but as his relative. He was obviously very close to him. And even in this beautiful, miraculous image of the Mendelian, his influence is uh, very evident to us today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271 2985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line if you give us a call at 1 205 271 2985 and uh, if you'd like to send us an email we'd be happy to receive that as well just send an email to openline at ewtn.com that's openline all one word at EWTN.com and put Thursday or Father Milady or something like that in the subject line and we'll make sure that we get it to the appropriate location. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Tony in Dallas, Texas, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've really got a neat item at EWTN's religious catalog as we get to the bottom of the year here. Um, it's an olive wood nativity ornament, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. It's a very special Christmas ornament, and it's made with real olive wood from Bethlehem, and it shows the Holy Family in silhouette inside the stable. 
and it features also a third-class relic of a piece of cloth that was touched to the actual birthplace of Jesus in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. The relic is encased in a miniature brass 14-point star similar to the actual star embedded in the white marble that indicates the birthplace of Christ. And today only, if you go to EWTNRC.com, it's the first item right up there on the homepage. And this unique ornament is a part of a flash sale today, and it's marked down from $8 normally to $5.99 today only. So check it out at EWTNRC.com. They're also offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. First up today is Antonina in the great state of North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Antonina, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hi. Hi, Father. Um, I have a question with regards to cremation. Once your body is cremated and your soul has already left, why can the why can I not spread the ashes uh, in a garden or uh, in the water or wherever you want? Why is that not permitted? It's not permitted because it's highly disrespectful of a holy object, which is the body. Uh, the body, after all was united to the soul and it was the vessel basically in which you did your moral life and we have great respect for the body in catholicism and we think that spreading the ashes to the wind is very disrespectful of this um, means and tool which we have used throughout our lives in our to express our spirituality after all, uh, the sacraments are all done on our body, like the anointings with holy oil and the baptism by water and all those things. And as a result, though you may, for example, you might bury have burial at sea by taking the urn with the ashes out and covering it up and dropping it in the ocean. Uh, if it's on land, it really should be in a, a consecrated place which is what a graveyard actually is, and a place that's separated by the consecration of the holiness of these bodies that have been united and joined to our souls. So the scattering is considered extremely disrespectful of um, the body itself. Thank you, Antonina. We appreciate that phone call today. That'll free up a line for you at 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. Lauren writes in, is it appropriate to ask saints to do things for us or just the intercessory prayer? Well, um, I would say that the intercessory prayer is what they do for us. I mean, they're obviously they're in heaven. They can't come down and actually physically do things for us. So it's by moral unity, by the unity of love, and the attempt to uh, apply that to what we're trying to do, and having the Lord bless it, that we're uh, invoking when we pray for the intercession of the saints. 
I mean, obviously, if I pray to St. Joseph to help me build a building, he's not going to come down here normally. I mean, we do have the example of the miraculous staircase in Santa Fe. But normally, he doesn't come down here and help saw the wood and build the building. Well, he obviously doesn't have a body. So um, it's what we're asking is for them to ask the Father that what we want is actually in union with the will of God and that we'll correspond with it properly so that we can carry it through whatever he wishes. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is Chris in the great state of Iowa watching us today on YouTube. Chris, you're on with Father Milady. Hi there, Father. Um... So just a question. I, um, when I was 10, this is before I converted to Catholicism, I made a vow of chastity. Just to myself, like personally, I was trying to be devout. This is back when I was Methodist. <laughs> My mom even bought me like a chastity ring. I don't even know why. And so I just kind of made a personal vow and, and whatever. Um, but like as time went on, like obviously I forgot about it. And, um, uh, we got married, my wife and I, and so I'm just wondering, like, was that, did I make a, like, not that did I make a mistake, but I'm just, am I still bound by that vow, or am I, like, should I confess that, or, like, I just don't know how to kind of go about it. I I completely forgot about it out of my mind, and I'm like, I don't know what to do now with this whole situation. <laughs> All right, well, first of all, I'm confused by what you mean by a vow of chastity. When most people take a vow of chastity, that means they're going to be celibate. Do you mean just that you're going to live chastely in your life? Uh, yes, yeah. All right. And I think that was before uh, I knew what that meant. But I mean, uh, you mean even when you're married, you're going to live chastely, right? By which I mean obey the laws of God and having sex and, uh, and things like that? Correct. Well, if that's the case, you haven't really broken it, have you, to get married and uh, have sex with your wife, provided you're doing it for the proper reasons, right? Correct, yeah. I mean, we're trying to have children. It's, it's yes. been a while coming, but yeah. Uh, so. second, secondly, uh, vows have to be public. They can't be just in your heart, uh, because they're a promise made directly to God of a better and possible thing. Thirdly, you know, you're only 10 years old, for heaven's sakes. Uh, we don't even recognize religious vows by people who are so young because normally they don't have a, a total freedom of their wills in this regard. So I would say your vow doesn't bind you, but it was a praiseworthy thing to do. And I would just forget about it and move on and worry about the present, trying to live chastely with your wife and also to have children as God intends. God bless you, Chris. We appreciate the phone call today. I hope that puts your mind at rest. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call for you anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Eileen would like to know if the souls in heaven and purgatory can see us on earth. Well, souls don't see people. Bodies see people. <laughs> yes, are they related to us morally, internally? 
Yes, all through Christ. Because we're related to Christ and they're related to Christ. They're certainly aware of what's happening to us. And they're also aware of what's happening to each other. But they don't see in the traditional sense of using your bodily eyes, because for one thing, they don't have eyes. And uh, also now, uh, their way of knowing is basically through their mind. And here's kind of a letter of the law, kind of a question for you. Greg wants to know, are Christians who don't receive the Eucharist able to receive salvation? Well, um, again, what, what would you mean by that? Uh, why would you? Well, I think be a he's Christian? probably referring to if you don't receive, if you don't have my body and blood, you have no life in you. Yeah, something like that. Uh, there are two necessary sacraments: baptism and Eucharist. The baptism for membership in the church, and Eucharist to live the life of the church properly. So, if a Christian never were to receive Holy Communion by design, I mean, obviously, if you live in a persecuted country like Japan. When, when the you know the Catholic religion was outlawed, you may never be able to receive physically Holy Communion. You can, of course, experience communion by desire. But if you were never to do so by design, there's something wrong with your uh, being a member of the Church of the faith. It's food for our journey to heaven. So can they be saved? Well, I suppose in the, in the final analysis but they're not making use of the means of salvation and they're not making use of the principal means of salvation. And when our Lord said, do this in memory of me, he meant that. He meant participating in the Eucharist and then, of course, the final participation, the most pure participation, is uh, through Holy Communion. Daniel was wondering if suffering is part of God's will and plan for us or if it's from the devil. Well, we have to make it this, you know, the suffering, first of all, is a great mystery. And I can't go into all this specific, you know, in two minutes on a radio show. <laughs> Obviously, it's a mystery that's um, crossed people's eyes for centuries and centuries, beginning with the book of Job. But I would say that the God's willing of suffering for us is remember by his permissive will. He doesn't directly will suffering for us. And the devil himself doesn't create suffering, physically at least, because that's just created by the fact that a lion isn't a lamb. You know, what's good for the lion, eating the lamb is bad for the lamb. That's the way material things are. But when it comes to moral suffering, which would be like the deprivation of heaven or, or something like that, that is caused by our own actions. Now, in the sense that Satan made uh, his suggestion, Adam sinned, and we're all participating in that through original sin. In that sense, you can say that the devil is the author of all sin, but, but not in the sense that he actually committed sins or that each one of our sins is by his suggestion. We're perfectly capable of figuring out how to offend God without the devil being <laughs> present to us. So uh, the answer to your question, a very simple answer, although remember it's a complicated question, is that when it comes to physical suffering, that's willed by God only because uh, nature is willed by God. God creates nature. 
and the way he's created material nature has um, one, what's, what's helpful for one thing in matter is detrimental to another thing. With regard to moral suffering, he doesn't will that in any sense, though he foresees that it will happen, and he makes good out of it, like original sin, redemption, Christ's coming. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of lines open at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. You know, it's really important if you're listening to us on an AM or FM radio station around the United States, and even if you're not, you still should, uh, if you can, support these great people that have uh, gone out on a limb and got these radio stations started. And a really neat event this weekend from our good friends in Marshalltown, Iowa, at Marshalltown Catholic Radio. So if you're listening right now in Marshalltown or in the general area listening to Marshalltown Catholic Radio Station, your Catholic radio station needs to hear from you this weekend. Catholic Radio of Marshalltown is celebrating their Catholic Radio Weekend Saturday and Sunday. Uh, which is, a, you know, usually those pledge drives happen during the week, but they're having a big Catholic Radio weekend Saturday and Sunday. So if you're listening in Marshalltown or anywhere, please support your Catholic radio station. And the good friends, uh, our good friend Bob Dick and the whole crew at Marshalltown Catholic Radio, it's really, uh, as all of these great apostolates are, it's just a miraculous story of everything they've overcome. Uh, so they are certainly worthy of your support. Get out, Catholic Radio Weekend, Saturday and Sunday in Marshalltown, Iowa. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, next up is Mary in Silverdale, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father. Hi. I'm really glad to be able to ask you this question. I've been reading a book on St. Paul and as on his travels, and it occurred to me uh, as I'm reading that, some of those places he was only in for a short time, and I never hear anything about him ordaining anyone to actually celebrate, you know, Christ, the transformation. They talk about breaking bread, but they don't talk about anyone ordained. And how, how did that happen? Did he ordain people in all of these towns that he went through? Well, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to your question, because I'm not aware of St. Paul ordaining anyone in the Acts of the Apostles. But I'm sure that um, there were ordained people uh, that uh, were um, coming to found these Christian communities uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to your question. Paul was basically sent to evangelize, at first the Jews and then the Gentiles. I would just assume that, um, you know, there were in some places there were already existing communities, as you know, because uh, we have all these epistles from St. Paul to Corinthians, Ephesians. Obviously, 
those epistles were written to already existing Christian communities. So if that's the case, then they must have been ordained by someone, probably by one of the apostles. God bless you, Mary. Thanks so much for the question today. Next up is Andy in the Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Andy, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Father Brian, thank you for taking my call. I was uh, concerned about one of my adult sons. Uh, they were all, my children were all raised Catholic, went to Catholic schools, and and as a father, I tried to set a good example and went to mass a lot during the week and prayed the rosary a lot. Did all the things a good father should do, a good Catholic father should do. But when he got um, uh, older, he decided that he didn't want to be Catholic anymore, and he embraces another faith, which he's very religious. He reads the Bible every morning. He does all kinds of charitable work, you, and he's a very, very good man. But he 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 kind of laughs at the Eucharist, and it kind of makes me sad that he does that because he wasn't raised that way. But my concern was uh, for his salvation. You know, I realized that. Uh, uh, Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, you don't have life in you. And I think, you know, he doesn't embrace that sacrament or the sacrament of reconciliation. And I just wondering uh, if you think that, you know, that he has um, a, a chance to get to heaven. I, sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if, if he does, you know. Well, until we die, we all have a chance to get to heaven. But um, I... I uh don't like a thing. I don't think apostasy is a good thing. And if the person has fallen away from the Catholic religion, if he really understood it, that doesn't mean uh, attending Catholic school means nothing nowadays. If anything, they get evangelized sometimes against our religion. Uh, it's very sad, but that's the way it is. But if with all full knowledge and full consent, he rejected our doctrine, I would be concerned about his salvation too. And I would pray for it. And if he should ever ask me, I would uh, try to um, explain to him uh, why I'm concerned about his salvation. Uh, I had a fellow I taught in high school. I was very uh, interested in him. And he was practicing Catholicism for a while. And then he just fell away because he'd been this woman who'd been married already. And he started to go to Calvary Chapel. So we'd occasionally talk about it when I'd see him. And he did admit to me one day, I did get him to admit, he said, you know, Father, Calvary Chapel is a very good Bible study, but it's not worship. And I said, you recognize that, huh? And he said, yes, it's not worship. So, you know, I mean, we need to be there at least to tell the truth when people say things or ask about them. And it's, it's, it's very sad sometimes. So many of our young people are deserting Catholicism. And as Chesterton said 100 years ago, when many people in Britain were deserting Christianity or Catholicism, he said all these people are falling away from the church without having any idea what we actually believe. So, as I say, I would be concerned about his salvation too. God bless you, Andy. We will keep uh, this whole situation in prayer yes. for you. Yes. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. Uh, Sarah writes in, It seems like there are things that Catholics believe that are logically impossible, like the Trinity or Jesus being fully man and fully God. How do you explain these illogical beliefs? 
Okay, well, they're not logically impossible, but they're not logically provable either. And uh, the whole, because they basically have to do with a mystery which is beyond our understanding. So a good bit of what's called apologetics in theology is based on trying to show to people that even though we can't prove the Trinity exists, and we can't prove that Jesus is the Son of God made man, we have to believe it, we hold those things on faith, that it is not logically impossible to state that. So it, it, given the way the Trinity is explained, what we ex think, believe about it is not logically impossible, but it's not also provable by our categories of proof. And then uh, Suzanne's got kind of a, a, the nuts and bolts of some of these mysteries we believe are a little hard for us to grasp intellectually. And she says, when we ask Mary to intercede for us, isn't that like asking Jesus to allow Mary to hear us just for her to tell him the thing we are praying for? Uh, gee, uh, <laughs> this seems awfully complicated to me. I mean, when I ask someone to intercede for me, that's uh, basically it. I, I need a further voice, you know, give me help. And also, since Mary is Christ's mother, I know that uh, she's very concerned for me because I'm a member of Christ and also very much centered on her son. So I, I don't quite see the problem. It's, it's a matter of intimacy, and there's nobody more intimate with our Lord than his mother. And uh, it's it's Apologetics Day on Open Line Thursday because Paul has sent us an email that says, I'm very interested in the Catholic faith, but my wife is not. How can I explain that all Christian faiths are not equal representations of the truth? Well, now for that, see, you would use the logical argument. Either the Lord founded seven sacraments or he founded two, but both can't be true. Either he's the Son of God, Bay man, or he's not but both can't be true. Now, there may be an interpretation uh, of, of how you can explain how such a thing can be, but again, those aren't, aren't proofs either. So, uh, in apologetics, one of the things you try to show people is that if you believe that the word is truth, you can't be teaching contradictory things, and certainly not contradictory things that will be the foundation of like 2,000 Protestant sects, all of whom are convinced they know what Jesus said and all of whom disagree with each other. Next up is Angie. She is a first-time caller uh, in the great state of Iowa listening on Siouxland Catholic <laughs> Radio. Angie, you are on with Father Brian. Hey, Hi, Angie. Father. Hi. I have uh, I had a brother that passed away with from alcoholism, and uh, he was a very faithful person. And um, but towards the end of his uh, later part of his, a year or two before he passed away, he did not go to attend church regularly. And um, but he still had the faith. And um, I was just wondering if he so he passed away in his home, and I know you know he would be asking God to forgive his sins or whatever, so he could get the opportunity to go to heaven. And I was just wondering if we don't get an opportunity to have the last rites or do a confession, is there a way that we can, you know, say our act of contrition or a prayer and ask God to forgive our sins before we pass away in that kind of, in that time of 
uncertainty that, you know, he's passing away by himself. Yes, in the time of death, uh, what's right. called an article of mortis, um, an act of contrition, perfect contrition suffices for the forgiveness of sins. And you don't have to be anointed, but the whole purpose of anointing is to strengthen you in the faith of mortal illness. And my question would be is, since you say he was a faithful person and believed in Catholicism, why he wouldn't make use of all those means before he died. It seems to me if I was getting ready to die, I want more of them and not just to forget about them. So there's something strange about the way at least you explain it. Uh, if he was physically incapacitated, that's a different story. But if he just decided not to do it anymore, uh, that's a problem. God bless you, Angie. Thanks so much for the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Deanna has an interesting question. Are all human beings born with a soul, and are human beings born with a conscience? All human beings are born with a soul, and all human beings are born with a conscience. Because the conscience is an intellectual judgment based on knowledge of the truth that people with intellectual souls have. Now, the trouble is that your conscience can be badly formed or well-formed, and the formation of conscience only begins normally when you become morally aware. And that is traditionally attributed to be the age of about five or six or seven. At the outset, seven. They, we call it the age of reason. because, And that's why we give communion then and confession because we're pretty sure everybody has had the ability to form some kind of conscience up until then. Now, of course, little children, they have a conscience, but it's not as well-formed as an adults would be about as many things. But still, it's in the initial stages of formation. I can tell you in my own life that when I was a self-centered brat, the only it was only around the time of six or seven that I began to become aware and concerned about the results of my actions on other people. And that's when I began to feel guilty about things and that's, of course, when we began to go to confession. But confession for a second grader is very simple, really. Uh, when we were taught confession by the sisters, you know, practically the only sin we were allowed to confess was disobedience to our parents because we, we don't, obviously don't do a lot morally, but it's still there. And St. Augustine, as you recall, took it as a sign of the original sin that two little kids fight in the crib over something. Well, they're not aware of that, I don't think. But as you become aware, you, you begin to develop a moral sense of what your, the results of your actions are on others. And, and that's what we're born, we're all born with it. The ability is only developed, though, when the intellect is developed. Still time for your calls. We could squeeze you in right now if you pick up the phone and call us at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
3986. Here's a question that is unfortunately becoming more and more uh, frequent. Uh, May wants to know, she says, in my work as a nurse, am I sinning by giving hormone injections to patients with gender dysphoria? All right, now I have to be clear about the terminology. You mean the sex change business? Yeah, people who, who do right. not identify with the sex that... The sex, they get hormonal injections. Yes, to, to try to change that. Uh, yes, I would say you are sinning to do that. You need to find another place to exercise your nursing. I realize that the medical establishment is becoming more and more, well, what would you say, ghoulish uh, in its um, applications yeah, it's of It's tough these out things. there. <laughs> Uh, yes, in fact, Canada, as you know, they're just approving um, the ability on the part of doctors without parental consent to kill children if they don't feel they have a girlfriend and aren't happy. I mean, it's, it's, I hate to say this, but all the things the Nazis did in their horrendous experimentations, Dr. Mengele, we're adopting in this country now, and it can't be easy to be a nurse or a doctor, really. So um, remember, the whole thing is what in the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Well, those things are harmful, very harmful. Uh, just ask the people who've had them. You can't reverse nature. I, I don't care what they say by ejections and cutting a person to pieces. Um, it just it doesn't, doesn't wash. And uh, even though you could create something that looks artificially, like someone of the other sex, it's all artificial. So really, they still remain the sex of which they were born. And I have to tell you, I'm just, uh, I don't know what you think about this, but I watch the news and some of the people say now, in the medical establishment, well, first you have the child and then the doctor determines what sex it is. I said, well, isn't it, ob <laughs> I said, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, gosh, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's one thing has one thing, another thing doesn't. I mean, isn't it obvious? But apparently, these people today, everything's become relative, including your sex, which totally depersonalizes you. And also, especially with the children thing, uh, there are, people are pointing out now today that there are many, many cases psychologically of people in their puberty years who are becoming aware of their sexual identification, who are often very confused about it because they have all these hormones going nuts in them. And some people are men who would like to act like women and women who'd like to act like men. But it's not a good idea to try to establish a life-changing decision that involves cutting and chemicals and things like that at that time because it's normal and natural to have a sexual differentiation then where you become more aware and more identifying with your own sex. Be sure to check out News In Depth, EWTN News In Depth, tomorrow night with Monsi Alvarado. Uh, it's tomorrow night and every single Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. EWTN News In Depth with Monsi Alvarado, tomorrow 8 Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Um, next up for us is Daniel, a first-time caller in Denver, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Daniel, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Daniel. Yes. Hello, Father. How are you? 
Great. Good. Yeah, my question is, um, so I have a family member, and she's married, and she is separating from her husband, potentially getting a divorce, and uh, maybe null, uh, getting an annulment through the Catholic Church, and she's in a relationship with someone else during this process, and I guess she is expecting a child. And so are you allowed to participate in, like, anything that happens after that, like a baptism, if she gets child baptized, or if she gets remarried, is she, are you allowed to attend the wedding? Those are just my questions. Well, you mean married outside the church, I assume. Um, probably. I mean, she's a practicing, I mean, she used to be a practicing Catholic, but I'm not sure. Yes, but she's getting divorced. She has to get annulled if she's marrying someone else. Uh, if she's marrying someone outside the church, I would say that you, you can't go to the wedding. If uh, it's a question of baptism, well, a lot of people do it. Um, we can't limit the access to the sacraments totally. But on the other hand, we also have a responsibility to um, be sure that the uh, baptism will be somewhat lived. You know, it isn't just magic. I mean, it has to be lived, and that means that they have to have the ability to, in some sense, be raised Christian and, and Catholic. And by the way, um, in an answer to another question, I looked this up on the Internet. Paul regularly ordained pastors for churches he planted. He and Barnabas rejected, uh, directed the appointment of ordination elders in each church in Galatia. He instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town. And on and on and on. So St. Paul certainly did ordain people. But uh, yeah, um, it's uh, a question of prudence. But once a person gets divorced, and they can come to Mass, of course, but they can't go to communion. And if they want to raise their children Catholic, that's fine. But they really do need to have uh, some ability to raise their children so their children can live the baptism they've received. Um, next up is Chuck, a first-time caller. He's driving through the great state of Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Chuck, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you, Father Milady, for taking my call. Uh, I, all my prayers go out to you for what you do. Um, I'm curious, as what is the reasoning behind three Scripture readings on Sunday, but only two during the uh, weekday? <laughs> you're asking me? <laughs> I mean, I didn't decide, I didn't compose the new liturgy. They didn't, uh, they didn't consult you either? No, 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 no. Um, I, I assume in the Sunday case, it's normally uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the Gospels. Um, so they want to get hit every, you know, the body in the Holy Scriptures. In the daily case, we've always had only two readings, and so what they want to do is try to get through as much of the Bible as they can. Um, in the old liturgy, uh, you tended to use the same readings from Sunday unless you had a vote of Mass, except during Advent and Lent and Easter, which are privileged seasons. 
So that's the only thing I can tell you. As far as I know, that's the reasoning. And the three readings on the weekend were part of the uh, implementation of the Novus Ordo, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN. Next up is David. He's also in the state of Missouri listening on Catholic Radio Network. David, you're on with Father Milady. Hi there. Uh, uh, thank you for having the radio program and being here today to talk with us and answer questions. I was wondering... Um, how does one become Catholic? How, how do you get started in the faith? All right, you go to your local parish church, and you ask to, see, to talk to the RCIA director. And you say you'd like to become Catholic. Maybe the pastor will be involved, maybe he won't. But the RCIA director, the person in charge of catechetics for adults, is the person you want. Thanks, David. Appreciate the phone call. Jim would like to know, why does the Catholic crucifix have Jesus on it? Well, because we believe the Mass is a sacrifice offered for the living and the dead, and it makes Calvary present to us. So the image of Christ on the cross is extremely important for us. I know that the uh, Protestants don't have that. Uh, I had one poor man uh, who was a friend of, uh, uh, married to a friend of mine, he was a Latvian Lutheran, and he was that that thing bothered him. Why don't you just have a plain cross? I said, well, because we're commemorating Christ's passion. Yeah, but why don't you just have a plain cross? We sh why do you have a, a corpus on Christ's cross? He's already dead and risen from the dead. And I said, yeah, that's true, but we're commemorating his sacrifice on the cross. And what did St. Paul say he preached? Christ Jesus and him crucified. Absolutely. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? All right. May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend in you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, and EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.